Hey everyone, it's James and welcome to the Notorious Banker Podcast. As of right now, 2,883 amazing followers at Bank Better Guy on Twitter. Dozens more at patreon.com slash notoriousbanker, where for as little as a $1 subscription, you can help the Notorious Banker fight back against big banks with his notorious brand of vigilante customer service. Once again, everyone, thank you so very much for your support. I really do appreciate it, and I really do need it at this point in time. We are October 1st, 2020, the 18-month anniversary of Vigilante Customer Service from the Notorious Banker, and what an 18 months it has been. Um, I'm going to be blunt with you as I get started here with the podcast. Um, Bank of America posted something that I, I recorded a podcast on a couple of days ago. Um, basically telling customers to be on the lookout for people who tell them not to trust Bank of America as if um, Bank of America is, you know, North Korea or something. And they're saying, hey, there's people who, who talk bad about us. Don't listen to them. We are the ones who know everything. It's ridiculous. It's crazy the way Bank of America says that on a public post to its customers. I mean, you know what? As a human being, you shouldn't trust anyone with your money except yourself. But you should be able to give some deference to someone who works in a bank and someone who has a tie. I mean, for God's sakes, Bernie Madoff had a tie, right? And he stole $50 billion. So, of course... There's that whole thing about trust, and you know what? You should be able to trust banks, but I'm telling you right now that big banks have issues um, with trust and customers, and this is the whole reason my podcast exists. So this post came out, and of course, you know, a couple people mentioned it to me thinking it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious as hell because it seems like Bank of America is trying hard to discredit anyone who talks shit about Bank of America. And of course, I'm the biggest shit talker. And what's funny is in high school and in college and the, the beginnings of social media... That was me. I was the acerbic one. George Carlin was my hero. George Carlin wrote me a letter when I was 17 years old that changed my life. He told me, always give them shit. He told me, always give them shit. I got thrown out of high school at 17 years old because I was taking a stand for something that I just really thought was stupid in my school. And of course, the man, which was the school system, threw me out of school, ending my six-year um, perfect attendance streak, which really broke the heart of myself and my mom because I used to be really bad at going to school. And um, they basically said, hey, no, you know, James is going to have to do this or he's not welcome back to school. And it was something so insignificant. It was getting a plastic ID card for my three-room school. There was 30 people in my school and they wanted ID cards and they wanted us to present them to our one of our two teachers that, hey, this is James Baca, you know, checking into the school. And I just thought it was so stupid, and it was overkill. It was a year after Columbine, and I understand why people were getting kind of scared and worried for their kids and stuff. But I'm like, if you can't recognize who I am in a three-room school, you know, a couple teachers, 30 students, I was like, you probably shouldn't be a teacher. You probably shouldn't be a principal. And I got my ass thrown out. You know, three days later, I wrote an op-ed in the Albuquerque Journal big paper a couple hundred thousand circulation in mexico everyone in new mexico gets that paper it's not like the new york times and the new york daily news and there's like multiple papers in one town no the albuquerque journal is pretty much it in new mexico my op-ed was in there i talked about how people were overreacting to columbine how people were overreacting to certain things in the world this was pre 9 11 too so it was right in between all this stuff and i was just saying hey i'm a student i want to go to school 
All this stuff is just a false sense of security. I got invited back to the school the next day. I sent that op-ed to George Carlin with um, a letter saying thank you so much for giving me the voice and for giving me the confidence to, to fight back or to call something out as stupid whenever I believe something is stupid. And he wrote me back with an autographed picture. He said, James, always give them shit. Love, George. I mean, it it warms my heart to this day that I got that. And he's been gone for 12 years. And that happened, what, 21 years ago? Um, it's it's an amazing, an amazing feeling to know that I I was able to do that at, at such a young age, and it's been instilled in me. There's very few times where you can change the world. Very few times you can change the world, and me losing my job at Bank of America hurt in 2018. I was sad, but then I realized one thing: it wasn't me. It was them. I was fine. I was good at customer service. I had all of these amazing customers that would wait to see me i remember i would go into work at like 9 15 in the morning and then my manager would tell me i had six appointments waiting for me it was like six people waiting for me and no one else could help them and they used to get so pissed at that and they're like what do you do that's different than us why do they wait for you like what are you helping them with and they always made it seem so nefarious and you know what it was i paid attention i treated them like they were millionaires Okay, there is this lady by the name of Marion, and she's an awesome person. I've been thinking about her a lot lately. Um, I was telling uh, my Bank of America insider this story um, today, actually, because of what I'm about to tell you in a few minutes here. But um, Marion used to come in all the time, and she would sit in my office, and it'd be totally dead. And we talked for 20, 30 minutes, and she'd talk about... Um, her house got flooded and how, you know, another bank was screwing her over with her insurance check. And then talking about credit card debt. And she would ask me, like, how do you manage credit card debt? What bill should I pay first? Or, you know, which one should I pay off? And should I do a balance transfer to pay off the other debt? She would ask me these questions that, frankly, as a banker, I'm supposed to answer. But Bank of America doesn't want you to because they're like, hey, did you get any products? Um, any targeted offers for Marion? No. What does she want to talk about? Her credit cards. Well, does she want to get another one? She has four. And I would have these moments where I would be just so pissed at them. They're like, why do you need to know everything about her? I'm the banker. Trust me. Trust me that I'm doing what's best for her. And what's best for her isn't another fucking credit card. And my direct branch manager, the the last real one that I had before I got fired, was cool. And I'm going to say this right off the bat because I know when the shit hits the fan with the notorious banker that they're probably going to go talk to my former branch manager and all my former co-workers. I will say this. My final branch manager, Bank of America, and you know her. She's the blonde-haired lady. She was perfect. She let me be me. She allowed me to be the banker that I was, which was a very good one. So you leave her alone. If you ever come after her and say, hey, what did you do you tell James things or whatever? No, I haven't talked to her in two years. But she is literally the best manager I ever had, and she should be a fucking executive. That's how awesome she is, okay? So she let me be me. She hated the fact that these people would wait to see me for 20, 30 minutes at a time, but she knew I would do right by them. She knew that I was not going to lead them the wrong way. And Marion was one of those people that everyone loved. My f former co-worker, Stacy, my best friend, um, you know, en enjoyed her too. And then all the tellers enjoyed her too. And it was one of these great things until one day. Actually, I was in Vegas. I remember this because this was the, the trip I went to go see Justin Timberlake with my wife. I came back to a very pissed off Marion. This is a lady who does not get mad. She is jovial. She is from West Africa. She's from the country of Mali, I believe. And she loves life. 
like no other, okay? And um, such a nice person. She made me food. She made me this shrimp rice thing and this chicken rice thing a couple times. And it made me cry. I mean, people actually cared about me and I cared about her. And But she was furious. And I'm like, what's going on? And then she said, well, teller one. And I knew who teller one was. It was, it was our newest teller. Um, made a mistake the last two times that um, I paid my bill, my um, car loan bill here. And she said that instead of paying the normal payment, for some reason the teller put principal-only payment. So our teller, instead of paying principal and interest, like a normal car payment, she put it principal-only for two straight months. So what was happening was the actual normal payment was never getting done so it was being rung up in Bank of America system as late. It was literally being rung up as late for two months straight. And one night, they went to go fucking get her car. Even though she literally put the same amount of money towards her car. Like she did every single month on time. She was a nurse. She made a shit ton of money, okay? So she put the money into her into her car payment. The teller messed up. And then all of a sudden, there's this guy coming in here saying, Hey, we need to take your car because you haven't paid it. She gets on the horn with Bank of America Collection Services or Auto Dealer Services. I forget the name of it. But it's basically the repo department for the car loan company. And she tells me what a horrible conversation this was. She says it was brutal. She said they made me cry. And I was saying words that I never thought I would say to another person because I was so mad at them. I was like, you know what? Let's. I said, I understand. I said they probably are very salty people. Let's sit down, let's have a talk, let's let's call them, and we'll see what's going on. So I had her call on her cell phone, and I said, I'm willing to jump in at any time. I said, I have my little, they call it AVS code with Bank of America. I have my little verification thing. They can verify that I'm associate, and I'll be able to talk to them rationally. So she called this dealer financial services, whatever department, the repo department, and she called. She says, yeah, Marion, here at the bank. Uh, what do I need to do to make it, you know, it was like $2,400 with all the fees and shit that she had to pay just to get her car back. And I was like, she been she had been paying it every month. I was like, she has to get her car back because the teller made a mistake. And if we reverse those things, we'd have to throw the teller out, out of balance and it would cause a write-up and all that stuff. So there was some things that, of course, we don't want to tell her to lose her job. But at the same time, we need her to acknowledge and to fix this mistake. And we needed to fix that mistake for her. Well, she was talking to this dealer financial services person on the phone. And holy shit. I, I don't know how to say this without being um, just being straight up. That person from Bank of America on the other end, I could hear her on her cell phone. They were being like those angry people that are on like Jerry Springer or Maury Povich. Like, you're not the father. And then someone's throwing punches and pushing and dropping F-bombs and stuff. This was a fucking Bank of America employee talking to my customer in my office on her phone basically saying you're not a responsible person and you never made your payment and this and that and i was like holy shit like i was like my eyes were agape my eyes were just like stunned i was like i knew what happened and it would take a couple of days to fix but she was getting yelled at by a bank of america associate while sitting in my office and i'm like "Mm -mm, no thank you so i said give me the phone i was like yes this is james baka i am um Relationship manager at the Amador Financial Center. Uh, what's my AVS code? I gave her my code. It's a one-time use code, so she typed it in. I was like, well, how can I help you, sir? 
Why are you talking to my client like that? She's literally here to try to fix it. I can tell you that there was a mistake made in our branch, and I'm in the middle of getting this fixed. So why are you berating her? She She's done nothing wrong. She's here to pay $2,000 for something that's not her fault, but she's going to do it. And then we're going to fix it and we're going to get it right. But all of a sudden, she had to come up with $2,000 out of, out of nowhere. Oh, well, you know, we deal with this all the time. And you know how some people are. No, I don't know how some people are. This is literally the first time that this has ever happened. Now, I told her, I said, I'm a teller. I was a former teller for many years. I will be honest with you. I messed up a lot of times. I said that. And I've said that before. And, and I'll say this in the podcast right now. I was a shitty teller. I was like the worst teller ever. And the fact of the matter that I became a sales and service specialist and then a personal banker and whatnot is a credit to to sticking around and sticking it out and getting better with time. But I I was a horrible teller in college. And I I told this person on the phone, I was like, I was a bad teller. I made mistakes. I didn't realize how bad mistakes um, that you make can you know impact someone until I became a banker, then I became a manager, then I saw what a pain in the butt it is. I said, do, do not talk to my customer this way. She's here to get it fixed. We're going to fix it for her. We're going to get it right. And we hung up the phone. We did a cashier's check because we had to like overnight it. Okay, we had to overnight mail this check. That's how fucking stupid Bank of America is. You couldn't just magically pay it at the branch. Like, we're literally Bank of America. We have badges that say Bank of America. But because we messed up, she has to come up with a $2,700 check. We had to print it out. We had to call back this stupid department and say, Yes, check number 12345 is coming on your way tomorrow. And the tracking number is 12345. I was like, it's fucking stupid. It's like they're documenting all this stuff. That way they can release the, the car from repo and give it back to her. I'm like, shit. Like, I'm here. I'm an associate. I'm vouching the fact that I'm putting it in the envelope. I peeled back the little thing. It's sticky. I sealed it. And I'm going to call our freaking UPS guy or FedEx guy. And he's going to come pick it up. And you will have it in Texas or wherever the fuck you're at in a day. But it was all this official shit. And it was just all this stuff. And it was a horrible day. I remember that. It was like a six-hour day for me. It was like 11 to 5. And literally, and literally, that was half of my day just off of her had to go through all the minutia of getting the check printed out sending it out calling them back and saying it's sent out i called the freaking you know pickup special for delivery because i want you to get this check as soon as possible that way you can leave her the hell alone we're gonna get this fixed in two to three days okay we got it fixed marion is an amazing person we got it fixed and it sucked it took forever and you know what it's one of those things where would I have done it for any customer? I would like to think that I would have, but it was because she was one of our favorites. She is one of those people that makes you smile when you walk into the branch, which is what Bank of America doesn't want. They don't want smiley people going to the branch every day. They want people to use digital and, and ATMs and smile there. That way they don't have to deal with someone they're not able to sell to. Because it was her, of course, I'm going to give a little extra mustard to my customer service at that point in time. And I did, and we were successful, and we got it back. But here's the thing, okay? And I, like I said, I love Marion to death. And she won't mind me sharing this story. And in fact, when my book comes out, I do plan on talking with her. Because I want to do a podcast with her about my customer service when I worked here in Las Cruces, okay? Because it's, it's, it's important to me that you all know that I was a great banker and I was a great customer service representative for this company. And I'm just a very jaded person now because of what I've seen over the years. I love Marion to death with all my heart. But 
she was never the same after that incident, okay? She was never the same. She reminded me of my dad, and that's not a compliment, okay? I love my dad to death, but he dwells on the same shit over and over whenever it's something that impacted him. He lost a job 20 years ago, and he still talks about it. You know, my mom and dad broke up in 1992. He still talks about it. Like, these are things that he never let go. And Mary, in the last six months that I, that I worked there, would always come see me. Oh, James, that's good. You, and I, I don't want to do um, her accent. She's from Mali. You know, it's inappropriate for me to, to try to imitate her accent. But I'm just going to paraphrase what she said. She's like, James, I'm so happy you're here. You're the only reason why I'm still at Bank of America. Because you guys are so nice. You guys are so helpful. But after that, she said bitch. <laughs> after that bitch uh, said all that stuff to me on the phone. I was like, I was ready to move my stuff and leave. But because of you and because of everyone else that worked at my location, I plan on staying. And And... It's not like she was a millionaire. She didn't have a lot of money, okay? She's middle class, like we all are. And um, losing her would not have impacted Bank of America one bit, but she said she stayed because of us. And if that's not a testament to how good I am at what I do, despite the fact that they fucking stole her car in the middle of the night because of something that we did, the teller did, at my branch. That's a testament to, I think, what my customer service and what our customer service was. And my customer service remains. I may not have a bank, um, you know, above my head. I may not have a name tag that says I am a member of said bank. But it doesn't matter if it's Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, or City. Or even if it's a regional bank, okay? Like, I don't like talking about the lesser banks because they had to work hard to get the little slice of the pie. So, you know what? Not everything's perfect with smaller banks sometimes. It's just the way that it is. I try to leave them alone. But if something egregious happens, I'm going to help people with that. But big banks, beware. Because I know what you're capable of. I know the, the resources at your fingertips. I always said that I was a great banker, yes, but I would be nothing without that damn computer in front of me and Flagscape and FCO and Pro and all this bullshit that Bank of America had to make us look like we knew what we were talking about, which is crazy because it seems like a lot of associates don't know what they're talking about at Bank of America these days. And they have all these resources. They have all these things to make you look like a fucking genius. And they don't help people. So to just kind of wrap this up in a bow here, Bank of America sent out an email to a lot of associates, because I got it four different times via DM today, that basically said that they monitor all Twitter posts and Facebook posts and all this other shit that they're talking about. They make it sound like they're more North Korea than ever before. And when I got uh, these images, um, you know, when I got these images, I was stunned, okay? I, I saw it, I'm like... Jesus, this is all for me. This is all because of James, the notorious banker, that they're talking to their people about, hey, someone might appear trustworthy on the internet, but don't tell them about anything with Bank of America. And remember, we have a social media policy and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, holy shit. The fact, I, I don't get me wrong, we used to get those. Whenever I worked there, we used to get those things like, hey, watch what you say. You're representative of the bank, even on Facebook or whatever. But the fact that they're sending this thing out and they're basically saying, um, yeah, we're going to be monitoring uh, Twitter. And I'm going to read the bullet point here. We do monitor all social media activity that mentions our company, including both content we post and what is posted or said about us. 
We do this 24 x 7, 24 7 days a week, 365 days a year, across time zones and in multiple language. Um, I know some Navajo people, some Dine people, I guess, for the people who are indigenous to my state of New Mexico and Arizona. Um, I know Bank of America hires people who understand the Dine or Navajo language. I need to learn how to talk shit about the bank in Navajo, apparently, because they, multiple languages, right? They, they, they're checking multiple languages. And, yeah, they have some Russian people on Twitter. They have some Spanish people on Twitter. They have uh, Mandarin, a couple Mandarin complaints I've seen because I've translated. And I've tried to help people through translation. It's hard. As part of our broad-based efforts to protect and build our reputation, live our values. And where is it at here? And deliver our purpose. Like, I mean, it sounds like like it's almost a religion, live our values deliver our purpose or meaning in life you know I, and it reminds me of the movie the jerk with steve martin i know what my special purpose is <laughs> and that's after he sleeps with the the circus person or whatever um yeah okay it's weird and i understand that they monitor all social media activity but first of all they do not do it 24 7. b of a help is from eight o'clock eastern until 9 p.m eastern time every single weekday and then it's like 8 a.m eastern until 7 p.m eastern or something on saturdays and then it's 9 a.m to like 5 p.m eastern on sundays they're not there 24 7 and if they are they're fucking liars okay because they're not they're not writing people back because after those cutoff times used to be my time to shine when i used to be able to talk to people without them kind of horning in or whatever and, um, yeah, they may monitor, I mean, like, we do monitor all whatever. If you have TweetDeck, if you have any of these fucking services on your phone, I can, I monitor it. You know how I monitor it? I type in Bank of America. I type in Wells Fargo. I type in these things, and I just search Twitter. Twitter's a, an amazing tool because you can find what everyone's talking about all at the same time. We had the presidential debate. We had the presidential debate yesterday, and, um, I, I don't tweet about those things the only thing i tweeted was you don't want to hear my shit watch the debate be an informed american i don't tweet about it but i was searching i was looking through the debate on tweet stuff and i was laughing and i was mad and i was sad and i was you know that's just what we do it's a second screen thing and bank of america twitter is literally my second screen in life like, I may not even give a shit about what's going on with the bank, but I'll just search Bank of America just to see if someone's complaining about something unique and interesting, not even if I want to help them. I'm just curious about what they have to say about this company that I gave so much of my life for, you know? But I'm just going to read this really fast. It says, spending time on social media is a part of everyday life for many of us. Yeah, not all of us, right? Because some of you are better than others. You might be a frequent tweeter, Instagram watcher, Facebook community member, Snapchat fan, <laughs> they have like a like a nickname for every person for every social media or use other kinds of social media in your life many teammates choose to self-identify as a bank of america employee on social media well i i identify as a wells fargo associate on wednesdays and thursdays and proudly share news or updates about our company and you know what i make fun of it because they're like cult members sometimes whenever they announce some cool new initiative or charitable thing like like robots they all post the same shit at once and i think it's hilarious but if you're proud you're proud i i, I i'm never gonna mock someone for being proud of giving money 
I'm gonna I'm gonna call them out whenever I don't believe that it's a legitimate thing to be proud of. But you know what? Be proud of of the place that pays your checks. Others choose to keep social media activity separate and do not post about the company or identify as an employee. Now, I think this is what they're getting at here. Now, there's some people who work for Bank of America that are on Twitter, but they don't say, hey, I work for Bank of America. I know these people. I've interacted with some of these people before. Never do I ever say, hey, this is the person that you need to talk shit to or whatever. I don't care. Be your per- be yourself on Twitter. Don't be yourself on Twitter. Block people that you don't want to be around. Simple as that. I never used to block people until I got on Twitter, and then I used to get a lot of B of A haters, people saying that I was fat, that I was old, and all these things, all these bullying things that just kind of reinforced the fact that I left Bank of America at exactly the right time. And then it says, either way, as you click, like, share, and post, it's important to keep in mind we're a highly visible company, and you might be identified as a bank employee in social media by someone else, even if you don't include Bank of America in your, in your profile. I think that's hilarious. That is that is simply not true. If they're referring to me, I do not do that. With that in mind, in support of you, here are some important points. If you choose to share information in social media about Bank of America or any of our businesses, services, or activities, Look at these guidelines and it's a link that I don't have access to. To ensure you do it the right way where required and you comply with regular regulatory requirements for your role. Like for instance, like Merrill Lynch people can say, hey, come on in, I got a hot new stock tip for you. Make sure you know your line of business has a specific social media policy. Again, like Merrill Lynch. Some line of business policies have additional regulatory requirements based on the type of work you do. And I think most people understand and realize that that worked for the company. And then it says, our company does not, and it's emboldened, proactively monitor every individual's individual employee's social media activity. That I do not fucking believe. I've seen them with their Salesforce software. I've seen them with the capability of being able to kind of notate everything that's going on. And you know what? They don't proactively monitor everyone, but they sure should monitor the people that they're, they're, they're kind of worried about. You know what I mean? And then it says social media users, clients, influencers, employees, and others. I'm an influencer, right? Often proactively contact us about how they see our company appearing in social media and post about our capability services, teammates, or experiences. We review and address all of those inquiries and contacts. Um, No, you don't. There's so many people I deal with that get ignored by Bank of America. Even if you choose not to self-identify your social media as an employee, others may choose to identify you, tag you, or comment about you as an employee. And if they do that, our outgoing, our ongoing monitoring of the bank and mentions of the company and social media will review that activity. Now, if I say Brian Moynihan sucks, he's the CEO of a publicly traded company. He's not my boss. And if I say, hey, you know what, Brian Moynihan really fucked this up at Bank of America. Someone who's talking shit about Bank of America, that's not bad. Yeah, you may not like it. You may, I, I may say, hey, the person who runs El Paso Bank of America is the stupidest person I've ever met in my life. That's my personal opinion. And if that person agrees with my sentiment, well, that's their opinion too. So, you know, whenever they talk about mentions, we'll review that activity. If you want to identify or talk about this employee or whatever... You can defend your employees all you want. That's fine. But know this. Know that I know that Bank of America is not supporting their customers. And in fact, the things that I do with Vigilante Customer Service and the help that I provide 
does not tell people to call them out. In fact, I say the opposite. I said, don't look for them on social media. Don't bother them that way. I say, be professional. Be courteous. The only way you're going to get listened to for help, I say. And I say this, and, I, and I'll have screenshots to prove it. When my book comes out, I'll be proud to show that to you all. I say, you know what? Be firm. Be mad, but be firm. But be respectful. I was like, this person doesn't know you from Adam at this point in time. You need to let them know what's going on. You need to let them know what's happening. And you need to let them know that I want to complain and I want it on the record because I need to get this fixed. Simple as that. Period. End of story. Our company and teammates are guided by our employee code of conduct. Actions, communications, and posts that are inconsistent with our code are not acceptable in any setting, including on our intranet or Bank of America managed social media or your personal social media. So, okay, so you can't say something like, fuck yeah, Bank of America, if you work at Bank of America on Bank of America's Twitter. On intranet, which is what I don't understand, like they have like comments, like whenever they post a news article, and it's always like cultish behaviors, like, yeah, that's another reason I'm proud to work at Bank of America. Been here 22 years, and they're always coming up with something great and new and blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, literally, that's like all the time on their internet. So, yeah, people are going to go, oh, you guys fucking suck. I mean, they, you obviously work for Bank of America, so you're not going to be saying stuff like that unless you're looking to get fired. Posting social media or other content that is abusive, including discriminatory remarks, promotes and threatens violence, or similar inappropriate or unlawful conduct will not be tolerated and may result in disciplinary actions. These behaviors are not in alignment with our core values and employee code of conduct. If you're concerned about social media activity, a post or a tweet about the company, <laughs> meaning James, uh, and and or about your employment, contact your manager, all you, your manager right away. Thank you for all you do to support fellow teammates, our company, and the communities where we work and live. So here's the thing, okay? I understand they put that last one saying, hey, you can't say threatening things, whatever. This whole thing is about negative comments on Twitter, negative comments on Facebook. There's an I Hate Bank of America group on Facebook that I'm a part of. And there's two people commenting on it. There's Heather Bryant, who was the subject of an American Banker article. And I'm going to get to that in a second. And yours truly. And I bear, I post videos. And I don't always post videos about... Things that happen to me at Bank of America, I just post things about, hey, watch out for this, watch out for that. Or I'll comment whenever someone has help or something, or someone needs help, excuse me. These are things that I do, and these are things that I know because I'm proud of the knowledge that I have, and I'm willing to share it with these amazing people who need my help. But here's the thing here, okay? The reason why I don't go like balls to the wall on Facebook and say, oh yeah, Bank of America, this and that. I'll post on my personal social media and say, hey, I'm working on this and this is what's happening at Wells Fargo and Bank of America and all that. It's because I don't necessarily care for Facebook as much as I used to. I can't believe I'm saying that. And then secondarily, that I hate Bank of America group that I joined that has like 900 members. I just have this sneaking suspicion that people that work at Bank of America started this group. It just looks weird. Because there's random people that post things about Bank of America, but no one ever comments or anything. So I'm just kind of wondering, was this group just set up here to see who's shit-talking them, you know, in a private way on social media? And I blocked Bank of America, B of A tips, B of A help, and all these things on Twitter. So if I say, at Bank of America is a bunch of idiots, I'm not threatening them or I'm not harassing them. In fact, I proactively block them to make sure that I don't instigate or start something with them that I don't want to start. I am entitled to my opinion as a former employee that I think a lot of the things that they do are stupid, okay? But here's the thing. 
I'm going to wrap it up here because it's already been 30 minutes and I have other shit I want to talk about. Here's the thing. I will not stop helping people the way that I know how to help. There's this person who had a savings bond from C-First Bank today. Do you know what C-First Bank is? C-First Bank is a bank that was acquired by Bank of America in Washington State. Like in the fucking 90s or something like that. I was, I was like 10 years away from being an employee. I know C-First Bank because I read about it on Bank of America's internet. There was things that we had to do for Washington State accounts that we didn't have to do for other states. It was a pain in our ass, but I had to do training and I had to learn about it. So I, I did all this stuff in order to be better at my job. And all these years later, someone brings out a, a savings bond from Seifer's Bank. Doesn't have any routing information, just has his name typewritten on there. And it's for $50. And he's like, hey, Bank of America, do you think I can cash that? And I just wrote him. I said, oh my god, I've never seen that before. And I said, I don't think they're going to cash it for you because I don't see anything that tells me that they'll be able to run it through their scanner. But I was like, you know what? Find an older person at Bank of America. They may have seen one of these once 20 years ago and they may be able to look up on the policy guide on how to get this thing cashed because it does not say Bank of America. It says something that was a previous bank before Bank of America bought it out. Bank of America likes to acquire the histories of these companies and say, yeah, Bank of America in Massachusetts, we've been around for 300 years. <laughs> Even though like the country's 240 years old or whatever, they literally do that, I swear to you. So you need to find someone who helps you there. I can't help them. I can't give this person their money back. I can't berate a manager for Bank of America to say, hey, fix this guy's shit and give him his money for this bond that he didn't know he had for 25 years. But what I can do, and I sound like a Bank of America associate, although I can't refund your fee, what I can do for you is, it just ingrained in me, what I can do for this person is say, hey, you know what, you should go to a manager and say, this is from the bank that was before Bank of America. It's a savings bond. It's supposed to be $50. Is there a way to negotiate that? And I, and he, he even said, if you can't negotiate it, then it's a cool little talking piece or whatever. And he, he didn't care about getting the money, but he said if he could get it, he will. And I said, that's the attitude. And I want you to go with that attitude to a Bank of America associate. I'm, I'm sending him to a branch because there's nothing I can do to help him. I said, talk to them that way. Say, you know what? I got the savings bond from my dad. You know, it's been 20 some odd years. He told me that it was pre-Bank of America. Do you guys negotiate this? Is there a way to do that? Um, does anyone know, anyone seen this before? If not, that's fine. I'm just curious to see if it's something you can negotiate. This person was already setting themselves up for, no, we can't do it, sorry. But it was already like house money. He already knew that he may not get it. So he was fine with it. Perfectly fine with it. And I said, that's the attitude, okay? It's like, you're expecting to hear a no. And, and I don't want you to feel that way about banks. But I'm glad that you're ready to hear that in case. Because I think most people think that the bankers are there to help them. And in reality, bankers are there to sell you shit. Bankers are there to sell you shit. And, and the tellers are there to tell you that, hey, you don't have to come to us anymore. We got an ATM. We got mobile deposits. I was like, I like your attitude. And I said, I am sending you to a bank. But I think you already know that there might be a negative response to your question. And you've already set yourself up for that. So you've already beat them. You already won at that point in time. And you know what? The notorious banker is going to win at what he does. This internet email that was sent out, the one that I mentioned in my last podcast, um, am I afraid of it? No. I'm not I'm not afraid of what Bank of America perceives to be a threat by me. 
I'm not threatening anyone. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm wanting to help people in any way that I can. But secondarily, here's the thing. I'm not going anywhere. The Notorious Banker has uh, the right to an opinion as an American. I can tell stories about my past at work. In fact, that's all we used to do at work is tell stories about work. And whenever we go out to eat, you know what we do? We tell, tell stories about work. That's basically what it is when you work at Bank of America. And you know what? Two years gone from it, I'm still telling fucking stories. And if I didn't have this podcast, I would still tell those stories. Bank of America cannot punish me for having an opinion, for calling them stupid, or for believing what I believe with my vigilante customer service and the book that I'm writing that's going to detail my opinions of what's going on at Bank of America the last couple of years. But you know what, that's not going to stop them from trying to scare people into thinking that I'm some rogue agent or something like that. I'm not. I'm a 37-year-old man who, who believes firmly that people can do better customer service. I believe that this company can do amazing things and I work there. And it wasn't until I left that I knew that they lied to me and disappointed me and disappointed our customers. I'm giving them a chance to redeem themselves and anytime that they don't redeem themselves... I'm going to use my vigilante customer service. I'm going to get people conversations. I'm going to get people their money back whenever they're defrauded and Bank of America says no. Whenever Bank of America charges a fee inadvertently and says that they can't fix it. Whenever Bank of America charges $5 for a debit card because the chip is broken, something that is their fault but the customer gets charged because of their inconsistent and shoddy debit cards that just don't work, you better believe I'm going to call those things out because, you know, as a notorious banker, these are things that are easily fixed. These are things that will take two seconds to get fixed and will make a customer happy. When you're not making the customer happy, guess what? It may not be the Notorious Banker with 2,883 followers. It may be some Joe Blow with 800 followers, but he's going to tell everyone how much you fucking suck if you can't help them. That's life, okay? We're in, we're in the world of Yelp reviews and TripAdvisor reviews, okay? Everyone is going to literally hear about how you screwed them over if you screw them over. Look at Bank of America's Google reviews. All of them are under three, and most of them are under two, for God's sakes. The branch I got fired from is at 2.1 out of five, for God's sakes. I didn't do it all. I didn't cause all of that. And not everyone who works at Bank of America causes all that. But you got to wonder, why do people rate them so, so bad? It's because, you know what, they expect good customer service for you, and you don't deserve a five whenever you provide the service you're supposed to provide. But when you fuck up, they want to tell other people, hey, these people fuck up. I am not your problem on social media, Bank of America. In fact, I am quite the opposite. I'm giving people hope. The hope that you're supposed to give them as clients of Bank of America National Association or Wells Fargo and Company National Association. I give people the opportunity to say, hey, you know what? I believe you've been screwed, I believe you've been burned, and I believe that you need to talk to someone about it. Here's how to talk to this person. That's all I do. If you don't believe that, Bank of America, if you don't believe that, Wells Fargo, but especially Bank of America because of these emails and the websites that they posted, um, it's just another reason why your bank sucks. So that was the longest intro in the history of the Notorious Banker, going on 40 minutes. But I wanted to get that off my chest uh, because I am really frustrated about Bank of America's portrayal of yours truly, even though they didn't say the notorious banker, and Bank of America's portrayal of being such a, a sweet, innocent company when they're really not. They're really not.
I'll give you the straight dope every single day at Bank Better Guy on Twitter why they're not. So this is going to be a three-segment podcast, but since I went 40 minutes on this one, I want to talk about one thing and one thing only today, and that is um, Austin Weinstein, awesome reporter from the Charlotte Observer, um, put out a story about Wells Fargo, um, of course, CEO Charles Scharf, uh, discrimination, um, is the talk of the day, is the flavor du jour at Wells Fargo because of these comments that he made in a Zoom meeting in June about the lack of black talent and Wells Fargo. Well, you know, I can tell you stories of why I believe that that's true, even though I never worked a day in Wells Fargo because of similar experiences at Bank of America. But after this brief promotional consideration, I'm going to get into the weeds um, with Austin's article, and I'm going to talk about what exactly it means and what, what exactly the whole story was about and how I'm going to kind of tie it back to the way the banking industry is as a whole. Because it's all the same, okay? It really is genuinely all the same. So after this brief promotional consideration, I'll be right back with that. So um, thank you for listening to my long rant, and please stick around. Hey everyone, it's James, also known as the Notorious Banker, and I'm imploring you to join me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash notoriousbanker. For as little as a $1 subscription, you can help join the Notorious Banker in his fight against big banks. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, and City are constantly screwing over customers, and the Notorious Banker shows customers how to fight back against big banks, and in some cases get money returned into their bank accounts. I'm great at what I do. With Vigilante Customer Service, we have recouped almost $1.1 million in 16 short months. That comes from 13 years of managerial experience at a big bank, financial acumen, policy knowledge, product knowledge, and much more. The Notorious Banker is asking for your help for as little as $1 a month in order to continue the fight to keep this job going full-time and to help more customers. $2 a month gets you additional content. $5 a month gets you an electronic version of my book. $15 will get you a paperback, but at least $1 a month will help contribute to the good fight. Help the Notorious Banker today by subscribing to his Patreon, patreon.com slash notoriousbanker, and I really, really hope to see you there. Thank you so much. All right, we're back with more Notorious Banker. So uh, Austin Weinstein, banking reporter for the Charlotte Observer, has a really interesting article out that he posted a couple of days ago where it talks about seven high-ranking black women leaving Wells Fargo recently. And of course, with the comments made by CEO Scharf in June about the lack of a talent pool for black candidates for executive positions, this, of course, uh, falls right in line with what we've been talking about, what a lot of uh, people of color have been talking about uh, in the last 10 days or so. And, you know, I have I have my own opinions and my own thoughts on it, and a lot of them are in line with what a lot of these people are talking about with Wells Fargo. And this, we mentioned seven women who have left Wells Fargo. And I'm just going to kind of read uh, bits and pieces of the article here. It says, At least seven black female senior executives have left Wells Fargo in the past 12 months, depleting the pipeline of women executives of color to the, most ba- to the bank's most senior positions. Two went to work at Citigroup, which just announced the first female CEO of a major U.S. bank. Congratulations to them. One went to work at American Express, reporting to one of the most senior black men in finance. Another left for Equifax. Two people with direct knowledge of the matter says, the bank's culture around race and gender was a factor in why some of the black women left. 
Now, I've said it before, of course, I only know Bank of America experiences from my 13 years of working there, but I am familiar with the banking industry in general in my state, New Mexico, a predominantly Hispanic state, so we are, you know, full of color here, to put it mildly. Um, But, you know, one of the things that I always, you know, had that stereotype was that most of the people that we saw in banking, that I saw in banking, when I was in banking, and of course the people that were around me that were in banking, uh, a lot of them were women, and a lot of them were women of color, just because I live in a very heavily Hispanic state. So in my mind, this was, you know, being a banker was kind of the job for a person of color in New Mexico, especially if you were a woman. And every boss that I had was a very strong, powerful woman, independent, you know, all of them were mothers and all of them were really good mothers at that. And a lot of them had to juggle a lot of, you know, home life shit and a lot of work life shit. And they did it effectively. Yeah, some of them were kind of, you know, bad at certain things and it did reflect in, in the way that we operated sometimes. But for the most part, you know, as a, as a fly on the wall in a branch, I never saw these things. But of course, the higher up you get, the more responsibility the tougher the goals, the tougher, um, you know, things that you have to do in order to make sure that you're hitting your targets, hitting these quotas, these huge quotas that big banks um, put on you, um, it, get, it gets a lot tougher and you have a shorter leash, to be frank with you. And I think that's the way that a lot of these folks felt at Wells Fargo, especially um, in light of the, the unauthorized account scandal. And a lot of these people were brought in after the scandal. So a lot of them were here to try to fix things that were broken. And then the problem with that is whenever you fix, you come in to try to fix things after it's really broken, it typically doesn't work out for you. So I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt very, very slightly to Wells Fargo in this sense. And I'm just using a total sports analogy here. Whenever there's just a horrible situation, you know, in a sports team, let's just say the NFL, and a team goes 0-16 and they're blowing everything up, they fire the coach, they fire the GM, they trade their star quarterback away, they trade away their best defensive player, that way they can get draft picks, that way they can get salary, that way they could invest in the future. You never want to be the rebuilding coach, so when they fire the coach, and then they bring in the guy that's going to be there while they suck, while they traded away all their people, and while they're they're you know fielding a team, but they're not really fielding a team to win a Super Bowl. That team's not going to be as good as the team the year before. In fact, they're going to be just as bad because it behooves them to actually not be that good. That way, they can get higher draft picks. That way, they can get more star talent, and maybe three or four years from now, they'll be good. But you know what happens in that three to four years? And yes, it's been about four years since the Wells Fargo um, unauthorized account scandal happened. Those people never make it. They never see through all their work. Now, Wells Fargo's been going through some shit already. We already know that. Everything that's happened with PPP and everything, and $2 billion loss in quarter two, um, notwithstanding. But they're going through some stuff. But, you know, they're looking to get out of it just like any struggling company would. That's why they hired CEO Scharf. And all these people who went to work for this company were there to try to get certain things done. And maybe, just maybe, Wells Fargo will come out of it. But those people are no longer there. And yeah, they say that race and gender were a factor in why some of them left. I totally believe that. Because you have, a, you have as, a, as a person of color, and this is what I learned just as a Hispanic man. I'm not a black woman. I am a Hispanic man. 
and I learned this from family, including my mom, including my dad, is you never talk out of turn. When you have a great job, when you have a great job, you do your job. You never speak up. You just go to work. You put in your eight hours a day. You get your paycheck every week or every two weeks, and you do that for 30, 40 years, and then you retire, then you die. That's kind of the way that it is with Hispanic households. And I know from a lot of my African-American friends, that's the way that their their folks think about it. You know, they're like, hey, just find a good job and work there forever. Um, one of my best friends in high school works for the TSA. And the one thing that he told me about um, working for the TSA in, in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I know this because I go to Vegas all the time, is there's a whole heck of a lot of African-American people who work for the TSA at McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. And... I mean, I've noticed it, and, you know, it's great. And I really think, and, you know, I've talked to my friend about this before, and he says, yeah, you know, this is a job that you want to keep forever because it pays good, you know, it, the benefits are great. And if you have kids, there's, you know, the sky's the limit. You have a steady job for the most part. And that's the way a lot of people look at it. And I know whenever someone goes into any field, they want to be the best that they can be. But at the same time, you make do with what you got. Now, these folks, these executives that went up the ranks to Wells Fargo, of course, they don't want some ceiling somewhere to kind of hold them down saying, hey, this is as far as you're going to go. But unfortunately, it happens all the time. Because as I'll talk about um, in this segment here, a lot of the things, especially with Wells Fargo and CEO Sharf, is there's a lot of like good old boy network type stuff. There's a lot of people who know each other. There's a, And this goes for banking in general. I'm not going to pick on Wells Fargo specifically for that. This happens at B of A too. Um, my, my manager, the one that fired me, she was a branch manager for the longest time. And her boss was the person that she replaced. And then whenever she became the market leader, my former direct boss became a branch manager. So basically they were trading spots, the number one and number one A spot at Bank of America. So one would report to the other and then three years later they wanted to switch it up and they say, hey, we need you at the branch. You go down there and you be the market leader. So that person became the, the number one person. It's weird and I can only imagine how stressful that is that someone that you're bossing around is now your boss, you know, from one day to the next at Bank of America. And that frustrates it and all that turmoil, all that tumult that happens with um, incidents like that, it kind of leads to resentment and it also kind of slows your growth because that market leader is not allowed to be successful because all of a sudden they get transferred back down to branch manager and despite hitting their goals um, or not hitting their goals, they're not recognized the way that they should be and they're not going to get that next spot up which is you know market president or area leader or whatever. So I always used to feel that it was on purpose for a lot of those people that were directly above me. I really felt that they were kind of held back um, by all these insane goals and all these things where, you know, the bank wanted to switch things up. Hey, we want you over here at the east side branch instead of the west side branch because they really need your help over there. And in that time, you're there for six months to a year trying to write that ship. Meanwhile, you're trying to ride a ship on the same level that you've always been and you never get recognized by moving on up to the next step. Now, it sounds convoluted and complicated, I know, but I really think that's the way that a lot of people feel whenever they get that high up at a bank like Wells Fargo. And one thing was really striking about um, Austin's article here when he wanted to, to speak about their departure or he wanted them to speak about their departure 
And it says six of the women declined to speak publicly about their departure, and one did not respond to a request for comment. So the people who declined, and then that seventh person who didn't respond, is basically a decline as well because, I mean, they're bankers. They check their email all the fucking time. So, of course, this person saw the email, and they they chose not to respond. So to me, that's a decline. This is my personal observation being a person of color for my whole life, obviously, and being a managed, you know, being managed by a person, an African American woman for the longest time. They know that they don't want to speak publicly about, hey, this is what happened at Wells and this sucked and this is horrible what happened because even though they're at other companies, all of a sudden they'll be pegged and they'll be kind of branded as difficult to work with. Or, you know, they're they're speaking out against a former employer. You know, they're going to be considered disgruntled at that point in time. And I run into this stuff with my podcast all the time. You know, people say, oh, you must hate Bank of America. You must have, you know, a bias against them because of firing you. No, they fired me. And, and according to them, they fired me justly. And I'm never going to say, hey, I was, I was wrongfully terminated. According to their stupid rules that they put on us. Yeah, they, they, had, a, they had a right to fire me for the incident that occurred with me. That doesn't make it that I did something wrong. They just gave me um, supervisor authority that they cashed in and said, hey, you know what, you used it wrong. Well, it's up to your interpretation whether I use my supervisor authority wrong. But you gave it to me and you, you, you allowed me the authority to say, hey, it, it needed to be used in this situation. And that's the way that it is with um, these ladies here. You know, they declined to speak publicly about it because they don't want to say anything that's going to that's going to brand them as difficult to work with or bitter or anything like that. No, they just want to just put their head down and go to work at City and in Equifax or wherever at now. And then um, the unconscious bias quote that Sharf used in his apology last week is used as the, the, se- the header for the second uh, section of this article. And it says the concept that there isn't any bl- enough black talent in the pipeline in white-dominated industries is a belief held by some executive executives, but others consider it a myth that lets leaders off the hook for failing to diversify their companies. Sharp apologized for the comment last week after the Reuters report. He said it reflected his unconscious bias. All the women had their rationales for leaving the bank, and some left before Sharp's comment on the talent pipeline. But Sharp's remark in June had an impact on some, according to two people within the bank. It offended many executives of color and reinforced a growing perception within the bank and on Wall Street that Sharp had a preferred, quote, type for his senior hires, white men who once worked at J.P. Morgan, where Sharp was an executive. Scroll down to a little bit, um, a little bit lower in the article here. And the next byline is Jamie Dimon's son-in-law. And it says, since he started, Sharf has developed a reputation that prefers one type of top executive, white men he used to work with. To some degree, a hiring pattern was expected. Sharf was a hot commodity after his years as a top aide to J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, and he was given carte blanche by the Wells Fargo board to install his team to fix the ailing bank. Finance has been historically dominated by white men, so any group of established operators is likely going to be wider than the general population. Although, of course, the, the optics of it make it look that way, the fact of the matter is this. You know, he negotiated, um, Charles Sharp negotiated his deal saying, hey, I want this amount in salary. I want to be able to bring my own people in. And here's the thing, and this goes for any industry, as, as it's mentioned on here. 
you tend to pick the people that you know and trust. And, and the sad fact of the matter of this is he's only worked with a certain type of person because he's so far up. And then if he's, you know, what, 50-something years old and he's been working in banking for 30 years, well, 30 years ago it was just as hard for a woman of color to actually ascend the ranks to executive at that point in time. So all he's going to know is white dudes and older white dudes at that. It says, still eyebrows were raised when the new chief financial officer, Shrewsbury, our friend, chief operating officer, chief administrative officer, top public affairs official, and two heads of the bank's five lines of business were all the same race and gender. Multiple executives fumed, too, when Scharf hired Jamie Dimon's son-in-law, Connor Tolkien, for a role that reported directly to Scharf. Now, shit like that is stupid, okay? So if I was the CEO of Bank of America... Would I hire people that I worked with and I liked and I knew? Absolutely, I would. Why wouldn't you? If you had that much power, why wouldn't you want to put people around you that made you feel good about going to work, that that were able to be honest with you, but at the same time able to shoot the shit with you? That's just the way people are. That's why you develop friendships at work, for God's sakes. So, you know, here's the thing. I don't I don't begrudge Sharf for doing that, but I understand why people of color are fuming about this because they're like, I'm never going to get a chance because once this asshole retires, some other asshole is going to be CEO and this asshole is going to bring other assholes that he worked with with him. Do you get what I'm saying? And that's when it feels like it's a it's you're swimming upstream at that point in time. You don't have a chance to work your way up. Because the shit that they shuffle up top every few years or so is going to start making these waves that push you further, further back onto the beach and out of the out of the pool. <clears throat> and and that's the thing that sucks so much for people of color, you know. And that's the, that's the reason why I think this thing hit close to home. Because every person of color has a story about how they felt slighted at a job or, you know, at school or in a relationship or whatever and everyone has those stories and everyone feels that hurt everyone feels that pain now <clears throat> i don't i don't begrudge anyone for feeling that way but at the same time it's not necessarily charles sharp's fault i guess i should say for wells fargo's board to allow him to pick who he wants to be you know, the heads of the line of business or the CFO or the chief administrative officer or whatever. No, he negotiated that and they gave it to him. So don't be mad at Sharf in a weird way. I, I can't believe I'm saying that. He asked for something and he got it from the board of directors, period, end of story. So blame them for that. The fact that he, he made a stupid comment is, is different than this conversation we're talking about here. He made a stupid comment about a limited pool. Well, add people to the pool. Find other people. The problem with working working in a bank is the higher up you go, the less chance that you have to survive if a new administration or a new leadership team goes in. Okay, so um, of course the article mentioned that these people were hired to to right the ship after the unauthorized account scandal four years ago, but it didn't you know explicitly mention that they were hired by Sharf. In fact, I don't believe that they were hired by Sharf. I think they were hired in the in between, you know, from 2016 to October 2019 when Sharf was appointed CEO. So if they were there from that point in time and brought in to right the ship, then my theory is right on the money, just like it is at an NFL team. You don't want to be the in-between people in between the time that they were really in trouble to the time that success is coming their way because those people never get the credit. They're stopgaps at that point in time. I don't want these executives to ever believe that they're that, but if you're using a straight-up sports analogy, I really do believe that it's apt.
if they were hired under Stumpf or, or Tim Sloan and Scharf came in and said, hey, I want to bring in my own people, my own older, whiter people, then then I get it. Then it makes perfect sense. Because, like I said, you know, it doesn't even have to be a sports analogy, although that makes the most sense. Whenever you get a new coach, he wants to bring in new assistant coaches. He doesn't like the quarterback. He doesn't believe in that quarterback. He wants to bring in his own guy. That's the way that it is no matter where you work at. So I only know if from my role in middle management at Bank of America, not even working my way up to a place where I didn't have to deal with customers. I dealt with customers my whole career at Bank of America. But what I'm getting at is anytime you would bring in a new executive, a new leader of a team, that person wanted to put their own Z for Zorro on everything. That person wanted to brand everything in their image. And it used to suck, okay? It used to suck. I remember Bank of America um, switched our market, which is New Mexico, you know, New Mexico, El Paso, to some market in Arkansas. Like our sister banks were in Arkansas, Oklahoma, and like the Dallas area. And it was it was fucking stupid because we knew none of our, our co-workers in this region. We were all teammates, but literally it's not like we were going to get together for like volunteer stuff or whatever because they were like a thousand miles away. But yet we would be on conference calls and they say, hey, Little Rock, what? how many accounts did you get today? And I'm like, I don't fucking care about Little Rock. It's stupid. But because Bank of America was always moving around our branches in southern New Mexico, we were part of this Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas region that was just weird. We had nothing to do with them. We weren't even in the same time zone as them, for God's sake. And it was just so confusing and weird. And it was one of the harder times at Bank of America for me, because this was this was probably like 2013 or 14. We used to do casual Fridays, and you know what's funny is in retrospect, now in my late 30s, I don't like casual Fridays. I think you should wear a tie. I think you should wear a jacket. You should look good. You if you feel good and you look good, it's amazing, and you you actually it actually works wonders on sales and service and all that stuff. But casual Fridays, I had this um, Dallas Cowboys polo shirt that was Bank of America. That uh, my assistant manager, who was a woman, actually gave to me. She was pregnant with her uh, third child, and she got this polo, and it just happened to fit me. And I would wear it every Friday, you know. And you would hear shit about, oh, you're a Dallas Cowboys fan or whatever. And it it, it was crappy, but it said Bank of America on there, and I was able to, um, you know, save a day of washing. That way I could just wear a polo and some khaki pants or whatever. And then all of a sudden we got into this Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma region or whatever. And we got this dude. I believe his name was Mike Rogers. I think that was the executive's name. And we got this weird email one Thursday. It was before the casual Friday. And it says, um, in this region, we adhere to a strict dress code. I was like, would you want your surgeon to operate on you in a polo shirt or in non-professional clothing? And I guess this was literally a question in the email. It's like, all men must wear a tie, all men must wear a jacket, all women must wear, and then all their all the women's dress code stuff. And they had to wear like, like hose and stuff like that. Um, and it was all listed on there. It was like, no exceptions, no excuses. You dress professional, you act professional. You're a banker, not a... I forget what he said. He he said something stupid like, you're a banker and not a greeter or something like that, like a Walmart greeter. He was from Arkansas, so that's where Walmart was from, so I imagine greeter was probably in his vocabulary. But it was this thing, like literally this company-wide email or region-wide email that says, you have to dress professionally, you can't wear polo shirts, you can't be, no more casual Fridays. 
And I just remember thinking, God, this this guy is so stupid. He's never met us. And all of a sudden, he's just instilling his will, you know. You've got to wear a tie. You can't wear a polo. You can't wear a dress shirt without a tie or a jacket. No exceptions, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, asshole, I never met you before. Like, how do you, like, it's New Mexico too. You know, it's funny is I never wanted to use it's New Mexico as an excuse. But things are casual over here. I, you know, I always tell my wife that the unofficial, like, funeral outfit for the state of New Mexico is your best black t-shirt and a pair of, and a pair of dark colored jeans. You don't wear dress clothes to a funeral. You wear jeans to a funeral and, and the and the dressiest looking t-shirt or the dressiest looking shirt you get at Walmart ever. You don't wear a full three-piece suit or two-piece suit and, and shiny shoes and all that shit. That's just not the way that it goes here. So, you know, it was kind of a impactful thing to some people. It was only impactful for me because I had to start washing my clothes, you know, on Thursday nights for Friday because I only had four outfits or whatever. And that kind of sucked. But he wanted to put his mark on things without ever knowing us. And I never, he never went to our region, ever. He, he never showed up at our branch. He never even showed up in New Mexico, as far as I could tell. Because six months later, we were in another region. And we were in, like, southeast Texas. No, Midland, Odessa, Texas. Midland, Odessa, and El Paso and us. We were part of it. And then we had a whole other leader. And they didn't give a shit if it was casual Friday or not. Like, literally, that's that's how stupid it is. So we, people want to instill their own culture, their own beliefs and thoughts and people anytime they become the leader of something. So although, like I said, don't blame Sharf for, you know, the power that he got to hire older white people to be, you know, all these executives or whatever, blame the board. At the same time, this person says, hey, well, I get to hire who I want, and then they pick who they want. Well, yeah, then of course, you know, it's stupid, it's on them, and they wanted to build it in its own, build it in their own image, you know. So, long story short, if he didn't hire those seven executives that have left in the last 12 months, if they were there in the in-between from the fake account or unauthorized account scandal, I, I gotta stop saying fake account, it's not fake accounts because they had real consequences, the scandal and, and you know, the 12 months where Sharf has been there or whatever, then then I understand. Then I understand where they're coming from because yeah, race and gender probably had a role in it because Sharf looks like he's hiring only older white guys. But at the same time, this is what bank leaders do. This is what companies do. Sports teams do this. Everyone does this where they want to pick their own people. Um, there is a famous NFL coach, former Dallas Cowboys, New York Jets, New England Patriots, and New York Giants coach Bill Parcells. They called him the Tuna for reasons I have no freaking clue why he's the Tuna. Um, whenever he uh, resigned as coach of the New England Patriots in 1996 or 7, I forget what year it was. I was in middle school. He wanted to have con control of front office decisions and personnel decisions on the field. The general manager usually does that. And he wasn't the general manager. He was just a coach. He was just a guy who drew up X's and O's. And he famously said at a press conference um, a couple of months before he quit to go to New York to be the coach and president of the New York Jets. 
he says, well, you know what? If I'm cooking dinner, I should be able to buy some of the groceries. Now, I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing what he's saying because he didn't say it exactly that way. But that's the way Sharf, that's the way these people think. They think that, you know what? If you're giving me all this power and you're giving me this company to shape up into shape, hey, I know that, that old white guy that I used to work with at Chase. I'm going to hire him. Hey, that old white guy that I went to school with, I'm going to hire him. That's the way it is. And that and that's a, the systemic culture that's never going to change in banking until you legit put that in the bylaws you put that somewhere where it says you know what we have nine people on this board or we have nine executive roles here we're going to fill it with three uh, people of color and and there's no ifs ands or buts about it we're gonna we're gonna find people in this pool that we're gonna create if if our previous ceo sharp said hey there's not enough people in this pool well we're gonna create a pool and we're gonna make it that we're it's not gonna change overnight but two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, we won't have this problem. And then it's next person up. Next awesome executive that's a woman or that's a person of color or both up. And then that's when it changes. So, you know, long term, I think Wells Fargo can overcome this hit to their public persona. But it's going to take a while. And Sharp is going to have to eat shit for a long time with what he said. But, you know, the fact that these seven people left and, you know, sometimes you leave for a better job. Who's to say that these people are not in a better place? I'm, I'm saying it. Hey, one's working for American Express, two are working at Citigroup. That very well could be the, the next step up for them. Although I never moved banks, I towns. I knew that I was never going to be the manager in my hometown of Socorro, New Mexico, even though it was a town of only 7,000 people, because my direct boss was literally only a year older than me, so I knew that I was never going to supplant her, because she was always going to have that one additional year ahead of me no matter what. So I moved down here, I took a chance on myself, and yeah, it took a couple of years, but then I became management at that point in time. So maybe moving on was the best thing for them, but that does not excuse uh, the feelings that they felt working at Wells Fargo, because I know what it's like to feel uncomfortable at a place. Okay, I am an inherently shy person. Okay, I am. I have social anxiety disorder. Never really diagnosed. I self-diagnosed myself that because, you know, one on one, or if I'm talking into this microphone and you're listening with your ears, I feel this connection with you. But if you told me, hey, talk about this stuff in a group of 12 people and all 11 other people are going to get to like, imp- you know, put their input in there and they're going to challenge you and they're going to ask you questions. I may not be the same James the Notorious Banker just because of, of the way that I grew up and my personality because I tend to be more introverted at that point in time. So to the seven executives that left, there may be a culture where they didn't feel comfortable. They may have felt 100% perfect saying, hey, I like these people that I work with, including all these older white people that do not look like me, that do not think like me or came up from you know, poverty or came up from a working class neighborhood like me. But it could be the other way around. Those people that are older, wider, and maybe came from a privileged background may feel uncomfortable being around those other people and then the issue with that is they become aloof or they become they have this very weird negative energy and then it just creates this work environment where no one's comfortable i've been in those environments where it's just uncomfortable to be at work it sucks and you know what you can chalk it up to quote an unconscious bias the way charles sharp said and i will totally buy that you know 
100% of the time. The fact of the matter is these people left. And these people left the company because they felt that they weren't going to get anywhere. And that makes them 100% smart because, you know what, fact of the matter is it's probably true. If they weren't hired by CEO Sharf, then he never was going to give them a chance the way that they would have got a chance under the previous administration who, in fact, hired them. Like I said, I, 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 I'm prone to use analogies a lot, and a lot of people critique me for that. Not necessarily with my podcast, but my family and friends saying, you always have an example. You always have something to, to make an example of whenever you're trying to make a point. But the whole coaching thing, the whole, hey, this team is doing bad, so we're going to fire everyone, and we're going to bring someone in to kind of, you know, right the ship and try to rebuild. Those people never seek it out, okay? So uh, one final thing before I go, and ironically enough, uh, the team I'm going to be talking about in sports plays in the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, PA. The Philadelphia 76ers had this thing called Trust the Process, where they literally traded away all of their assets about 10 years ago. They got a whole ton of draft picks, so they were able to pick people from the college ranks to, to go play with them. And they were not signing free agents. They were developing their own talent. And then they were flipping them for more picks. And they said, you know what? We're going to suck for three or four years. And we're going to we're gonna see this thing through. But in five years or so, we should be a serious playoff contender. And we can compete for the title. So all the people that they drafted and hired, they were really good. A lot of them got hurt, though. So they didn't really see that success immediately or at least three or four years later the way that they said. They had to wait an extra year or two. Meanwhile, the coach that they hired just took a bath, man. He would win like 15 games a year. And there's 82 games in the season. So he just had a horrible record. And then finally, when everyone was healthy and all the pieces were together and the, quote, process was complete, then they started winning games and they started making the playoffs. They didn't make it beyond the first round of the playoffs a couple of years ago. They famously got eliminated in the second round of the playoffs last year and this year in the nba basketball bubble because of the pandemic they got eliminated in the first round and guess what they're like um you're done here you're not going to be able to see this team through to a championship because you were here to help develop these people through the process of getting to the title but since you aren't successful now you're not going to be here to see the end of that and we're going to hire someone and as of this podcast they're hiring a new coach to take over his spot who has won a title with a team in Boston 12 years ago. So guess what's going to happen? He's going to get hired, and then he's going to see that roster that literally took 10 years to cultivate, all that staff, all the support staff, all the ball boys, all the trainers, all the people that make these basketball players awesome. He's going to come in, and because he has that ring on his finger, he's going to say, you know what, I want to bring my own people in. I want to bring in my own ball boys. We're going to have different types of trainers. We're going to put that um, massage table over there. And he's going to be the head honcho. And he's going to put things in his own image. It happens in basketball. And it happens in banks. Does that make it right? Hell to the no, it doesn't make it right. Sometimes people just aren't allowed to see through the progress that they made. Wells Fargo complains of a limited pool, but guess what? They had seven people who left the pool because they were made to feel uncomfortable in the pool. So lie in your own bed, Wells Fargo. There's a lot of things, a lot of decisions that you made that caused this to happen. And Austin's article kind of hit the right notes of that because... Basically, these people were uncomfortable. They moved on. And now Wells Fargo is saying, hey, where's all the talent at? 
And although some people will call that offensive, which I do, of course, at the same time, you had it. And you could have been the forerunner. You could have been the leader in hiring people of color, talent, uh, talented people of color. But now you're on the outside looking in, Wells Fargo, what can I say? And that's another reason why your bank sucks. My name is James, a notorious banker, and thank you so much for listening to an hour, 10 minutes plus of this podcast, including my rant about Bank of America um, basically disliking me and having it out for me. Um, I really do appreciate that. Things are going to get kind of funky in the next couple of months here because I really do feel that the notorious banker is making inroads with big banks, finally noticing that he gets things done, that he has the attention of consumers, he has the attention of bank customers proving to those customers that these banks are crap and we need to fix it and we're going to fix it with our voice. So go to patreon.com slash Notorious Banker. Contribute at least a dollar to the Notorious Banker. Help me fight back against big banks. You get additional content such as other podcasts and videos on there. I have a TikTok page. It's um, at Notorious Banker. I have a YouTube channel that's available on the link in the show notes here. NotoriousBanker.com. Although the URL is going to change on that in the next couple of weeks because... Um, GoDaddy wants $114 for the domain name, and I'm like, no thank you, I don't have that money. So it's going to be like thenotoriousbanker.com or something like that soon, so be on the lookout for that. Things are coming to a head, my friend. I really think it's time for this project to get to the next step, and when my book comes out, be on the lookout for that, because it's going to be fun, it's going to be amazing. And I am going to find the right person in media to talk about this with me because there's a lot of things that I need to get off my chest about Bank of America sales practices that I think are not being mentioned in other articles. Now, I mentioned earlier in this podcast I wanted to talk about um, the Heather Bryan story in American Banker Magazine. I had already talked about it. But I wanted to fact check a couple of things that the, the interviewee said on there as simply not true. And I want to make sure that if you're going to be talking about sales practices at Bank of America, you got to get it right. So stay tuned in the next few days for a podcast about that, among other things, breaking news as it warrants. In fact, I delayed this podcast today because I wanted to take in what was going on with the president and the first lady last night. So, you know, best wishes to them. Hopefully they're feeling better. And you know what? Whether you agree with someone or whether you don't agree with someone, never wish them harm, never wish them bad health, never wish on death on them. You know, I dislike Wells Fargo. I dislike Bank of America with all my heart. I don't want these people to die. I want these people to live prosperous, ethical lives. I want them to succeed, but I don't want them to succeed in the way that they're succeeding right now. So never, never think that of me, okay? I never wish ill on someone. So the best wishes to anyone affected by COVID-19, anyone affected by the virus, just whether it's work or whether it is health or money or whatever, you know, best wishes to you all. And the reason why I do this podcast is I want people to bank better. I want people to get a better understanding of their finances and the better understanding of these big institutions that a lot of people deal with, but not a lot of people know about. And that's why the Notorious Banker is here, my friends. So until we meet again, my name is James, the Notorious Banker. I'll see you in a few days with another podcast, always on Twitter, at BankBetterGuy, and of course at Patreon.com slash Notorious Banker. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You have a great day. Goodbye.